Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning begins our first week of Advent, which is the season celebrated by Christians all around the world to mark what the ancient Christians called Adventus, the coming The coming of the birth of Christ at Christmas. So, just by show of hands, who, who loves Christmas? Yeah? Okay. Does anyone have other feelings towards Christmas? Wow. Okay, there's one semi-Scrooge. That's okay. Not everyone loves it. What, what is going to be shocking, given that show of hands, is that there are some people who have somewhat mixed feelings about this season that we're going into. And one of the reasons, I think, is what C.S. Lewis pointed out, is that there's actually, every year, there's really three different Christmases that are happening. There's the Christian Christmas, which is a spiritual festival celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God. But there's also the European cultural Christmas, which is a winter festival of being merry and practicing hospitality. And then thirdly, there's the commercial Christmas, which is an economic festival that retailers like to call the prime gifting period. And so there's three Christmases going on any given year, and the the confusing part is that they really have nothing to do with one another, or very little to do with one another, and each one of them has their own set of traditions and rituals and symbols. And so it's because for some of us at this time of year, We might have conflicting thoughts because we're worried that we might be participating in things that are unscriptural. We're worried about the mixture of traditions. And so we have a tendency to withdraw. For others, these things are just kind of part of what we do. We don't really stop and think about why. We just kind of do the traditions. We enjoy them and cherish them. But question is, do we really understand? We know the reason for the season, but do we understand why we celebrate the season with particular traditions, particular symbols? And how might those rituals and symbols actually be shaping us? So that's what we want to get into in this Advent teaching series that we've called Family Traditions. And we're going to be looking at how the traditions of Advent actually form us as the family of God. And so we're going to be looking each week at a different classic Christmas tradition. So the first one is the lighting of lights. Then we're going to be looking at singing of carols, feasting, and gifting. So this morning we're beginning by looking at the the tradition of lighting lights. And so my title for this morning is A Festival of Light. We're going to see three things. We're going to see the poetry of festival, the power of the festival, and why Christmas is a festival of light. All right, so we're going to read from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning from verse 67. And just as you're turning there, I will give you a little bit of the backstory. So we're going to be reading from this passage, which is part of Luke's backstory to the birth of Jesus. And Luke's 
account of the incarnation, it begins not with a birth, but with a pregnancy. And actually, it's two pregnancies. And Luke tells us that before the Virgin Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, her cousin Elizabeth became pregnant first by her husband, (laughs) Zechariah, who was a temple priest. And so there's actually two miracles involved in this account of the incarnation because Elizabeth's pregnancy was also a miracle. Why? Because she was barren and, Luke very tactfully puts it, she was advanced in years. And so in their latter stage of life, Zechariah and Elizabeth are told by the angel that the Lord is going to give them a son, John. And this would become John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so this is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And so we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 67 and on. And it says, On the day that John the baby was baptized, or circumcised, sorry, it says, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word. So what we're reading here is a landmark moment in the history of salvation and really the history of the world, the history also of this aged couple. And so Zechariah does what any one of us would do in such a moment like this. He breaks out into poetry. And so it gets us into our first heading, which is the poetry of festival. Now, as I'm reading that, and if you've read the Bible, you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, I don't know if this reminds you of any particular portion of the Hebrew scriptures, it's very reminiscent of the Psalms. It really kind of is a psalm. And it reminds us not only of that, it reminds us of Mary's poem that is delivered just a little bit before in this chapter that's known as the Magnificat. And so this poem, just like the Psalms, just like poems throughout human history, it plays a particular role. Poetry has played a particular role within language and culture. So if you think about poetry, poetry is the form of language that we most often use when we really want to elevate something. 
when we really want to elevate a moment or a person or a feeling and set it apart as special. And so my first point is that in that sense, poetry imbues holiness to language. Poetry imbues holiness. It gives holiness to language. And if you think about it, every single one of our worship services, virtually every Christian gathering and worship service involves poetry. In our case, it's poetry set to music. Some of them are not great poetry. (laughs) Some of them are. But it's the form that we most often use to express a deep sense of identity, a deep experience. It's what we use to, to, it's the kind of language we use to talk about the deepest feelings of who we are as people, as nations. This is why nations, most nations choose a song to most deeply represent what they mean. It's why a lot of people cry at the singing of their own national anthem because it's so meaningful. The poetry represents something so deep about what they see themselves as. And so it's a form that we use to remember important life moments, important kind of life-changing moments, moments in history. And in fact, it's one of the oldest ways of recording history. Some of the most ancient histories that we have are written in the form of epic poetry, uh, of myths, and often it still is. And so, if all that is still true today, and I think we can recognize it even in modern society, this is far more true of ancient societies, especially the society of the Jews, of ancient Israel, the people of the book. So most ancient cultures were what we call oral cultures. They passed down knowledge and history of their people, of their history, through poetry, through stories, through narratives that were passed on orally from person to person. And so if you ever read parts of the Old Testament and wonder kind of why is it so repetitive, that's an indicator that this was originally formed to be able to be memorable, to be able to be passed on from generation to generation. And so you can see that in Zechariah's prayer. And I just want you to notice what he does in this poetic prophecy. By the way, most of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament are also written in poetic form. And so what Zechariah does with his, his poetic prayer is that he uses it to situate his moment, the moment that he and his family are living in, and to put it within a narrative of God's people. And this narrative of what God has been doing since the foundation of the world. And so he situates his moment within this story that gives identity and shape to the people that he belongs to. And what he's doing is he alludes to this story that we call the Exodus. It's the moment where God set his people free from slavery in Egypt so that they could worship him. And any Jew hearing the words of Zechariah, where Zechariah says at the beginning, he says, the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. Their mind would immediately go to this story of the Exodus. It's what is celebrated, of course, at Passover. And that's the moment in the history of Israel that shaped them 
as a people more than anything else. And notice that as it is retold through the rest of Scripture, it's most often retold in the form of poetry. And not only in poetry, because God commands them to remember and to tell this and to pass it on to your children from generation to generation. And so that was done by poetry, but it was also done by festival. It was actually commanded by God to remember these events in the form of festival. So there's actually seven festivals that God commands the people of Israel to keep in the Torah. And Passover was the first one, the first one in the year. So I'll just read you from Exodus 12. This is where the Lord commands the people of Israel to keep this festival. Exodus 12, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, also called Passover. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service or this celebration. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And if you look at the history of the Jewish people, I think, apart maybe from the scripture itself, I don't think there's any one thing that has more shaped and, and preserved their sense of identity, no matter where they found themselves throughout the world and in the diaspora, than this keeping of Passover. It's a festival of Passover. And so the way I, I, I want us to think about this as we get into the season is that what poetry is to language, festival is to time. What poetry is to language, festival is to time. What do I mean by that? I want you to think of festivals as poetry in time. Because just like Poetry imbues holiness to language. Festival imbues holiness to time. Poetry, you can recognize it by its sense of rhythm, by its repetition, often by its rhyme, by its elevated language, and I think by the way that it can express these profound truths that are really hard to access in any other form. And so think about all those features of poetry and you see that they also apply to this practice of festivals, which by the way, every human culture as far back as paleontologists have been able to find has had festivals. And so in the same way as poetry, festivals, what they do is they punctuate the calendar. They give the year a sense of rhythm. They repeat regularly, whether it's every year or, or every few years. And, and, and what they do is they, they give us this sense of rhyme within our lives because they bring us back to familiar tastes and smells and textures and sounds. These, these rhymes through the year that, that give us a sense of identity. They also elevate certain moments in the year to remind us and involve our bodies in these deeper truths about ourselves and our communities that are really hard to express in, in any other way. 
And so just like poetry sets language apart, festivals set time apart. And this is why festivals really, scripturally speaking, they are holy days, which of course is exactly what we mean when we say holidays. It's the same root, same place where it comes from. And so it brings us to the second part of this, which is the power of the festival. Because here's the thing, Christmas, I mentioned this last week, that Christmas is the only Christian festival that everybody wants in on. The whole world wants in on this festival. And I did some reading on this. Um, Believe it or not, there is a job called an ethnographer of Christmas. There's probably not a lot of these jobs. But at least at my alma mater, there is an academic who calls himself an ethnographer. And I read a whole book on the on, on this point, that Christmas is both the most truly global and truly local festival that the world has ever seen. The first truly global, but at the same time, the most truly local festival. So and what I mean by this is that uh, Christmas is so global nowadays, there's not many places you can go where Christmas is not celebrated in some way. And it's celebrated in countries that are not even... Christian, have never at any point been Christian, and have had no Christmas tradition beforehand. So they've just got in on the fun. And yet, at the same time as being the first truly global festival, it's also the most purely local festival, because at the same time, all of us thinks the only place that does it right is where I'm from. Right? Because those are the things that express our sense of belonging, our sense of rootedness. And so Christmas has this kind of universal resonance that none of the other Christian festivals have. Easter doesn't, Passover, Pentecost, you know. And I think it's something in the origins of this festival that give it a universal appeal. And it give, gives it a particular power. Right? And I'll get to the power in just a second. But one of the interesting things that Pastor Jack writes in his, in his new uh, Advent devotional book, which if you haven't got it, I really encourage you to get it because it's excellent. And it's devotionals for each day of Advent. One of the things he points out is that the reason, or one of the reasons that the festival is Christmas, the festival of Christmas is universal, is that it's not tied to the calendar in any essential way. So the events of Easter, the events of Pentecost, and the other f- festivals, they're tied to the Jewish calendar. December 25th has absolutely no significance to the Jews at all. There's no significance. And it actually had no significance to Christians to begin with either. And what that does, because it's detached from the Jewish calendar or any particular calendar, it gives it an ability to be translated into any culture. And what you see in the history of the church is that as the church grew from Uh, Judea, and out into the Gentile world, into the Roman world, it was significant that the central miracle of the faith, which is the incarnation, celebrating it was not tied to anything that was culturally Jewish. And so it meant that you could enter into the story, you could enter into the poetry of this story without having to be Jewish first. Suddenly, the gate is opened for every culture 
to get in on the Savior. That's the story of the New Testament. And so it was radical. And you, and you see this in, you know, in Zechariah's song as he's celebrating and retelling the story of his people and he's situating the birth of John and the coming of Christ within that story. As Gentiles, as non-Jewish Christians began to, to retell this story and to celebrate the same story, what they're doing is they're identifying themselves within that same story. They're beginning to see themselves as part of it, as shaped by it. And so we actually shape our character. They produce holiness and, and closeness to God. Well, habits shape you as a person, but what you see with festivals is that they have a shaping power on a people. Festival has a formative power on a people. And this is key, all right? So when you look into the history of Christmas, and I, I'm, I could do the whole thing on this, but I won't because it's really interesting. No one really knows why exactly the church chose the 25th of December to celebrate the birth of Christ. There's different theories, but there's really no solid, you know, incontrovertible evidence for any of these theories. Because the truth is, nobody cared really when Jesus, what day Jesus was born until the late second century. Why is that? Because Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. The Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. The Romans did. And so what you see is, as the church grew from this little enclave of, you know, messianic Israelites and out into the Gentile world, into the Roman world, and became more and more Roman and welcomed in these people of different cultures, they began to celebrate and be interested in the day that Jesus was born because that was part of their culture. And so what you see about the early church, if you study the early church, it's amazing. I mean, they, they went from, at the end of the first century, there was probably about 20,000 followers of Jesus. Within 300 years, there was something like 200 million. This is what you would call exponential growth. Okay? What that tells us is they were extremely missional. They lived incarnation long before they celebrated it. They lived it. And the, the method of the early church, what we know from history, is that the method of the early church, as it expanded into the pagan world, was let's keep as much of the local culture as possible while purifying it, cleansing it from its pagan associations. I did a whole series on this last Advent. So really, if you're really interested in that, you can, you can go back and listen to that. But what they did was, whenever there were symbols or, or celebrations or the church rites of passage that were not contrary to the gospel, the church would baptize them. And the reason was, if this contains something that can point people to the gospel, then let's use it so that it gives people an entry point to understand this story, to be able to find themselves within this story because they really truly believe that Christ was the savior of the whole world. Every culture, every tribe, every tongue. And so they baptized the cultural forms of every culture that they entered and raised it to new life in Christ. And so... 
You have to remember that most people in most times, most places around the world, were not able to read, were not formally educated. And so one of the central ways that communities throughout history have passed down, this is who we are, this is how we do what we do, this is where we come from, is not through books, but through festivals through these ritual communal practices. So festivals, these poetry, uh, poetry in time, it was a primary way of forming identity as a people and a sense of meaning. And so in that way, through history, what you see is this next point is that redeeming festivals historically actually formed the church as a distinct people. Redeeming festivals was this important method of forming the church as a distinctive people. And actually, what I want to say, and and part of the reason we're pursuing this, this Advent, is that the same is happening to us today. Not just by going through the rituals, but by attaching the poetry of the meaning of the season as we do the rituals. You have to have both. Otherwise, there's, there's no meaning that's passed down. You have, to, you have to have the poetry in the festival. And as we celebrate these traditions, what we're doing, actually, what we're doing as a people is we're retelling. We recover the We're locating ourselves within the story. And as we recover the poetry within the rituals, what happens is we begin to understand ourselves through them. We begin to see ourselves within this story and understand who we are and where we're going through it. And as our families take part in these traditions, we're entering the same poetry. We're entering the rhythms, the rhymes, the meter that have shaped God's family for millennia. And so I, I just, I want to stress to you again, and again, we, we touched on this a lot last year, but there's nothing hidden or, or nothing to be afraid of in the fact that there's, there's symbols and traditions that were borrowed out of pre-Christian societies that was an intentional baptism and redeeming of symbols that had a gospel seed within them. And so many of the ones that we're actually familiar with, the reason we've got evergreens and this kind of stuff, most of it is is German. Some of it is from other places in Europe. A lot of it is Moravian, believe it or not, which is pretty cool, given that we're on Moravian soil in this part of the country. Some of them are handed down from Coca-Cola. That's the reason... Santa's suit is red and not green or, you know. Anyway, so (laughs) the point is, everywhere the church has gone, it's learned to inhabit the culture that it encounters with the gospel. Baptizing its symbols and fulfilling their meaning in Christ. And so, so here's the thing about you know, birthdays, when the church encountered birthdays in the Roman world, there's nothing anti-biblical about recognizing and celebrating birthdays. It just wasn't Jewish culture. But there was something pagan attached to this particular day of December 25th, and that did need to change. All right? So historians point out that the, one of the likely reasons that they chose the date of Christmas in December was that there was three Roman festivals in midwinter. One was called Kalends, which, interestingly, it included gift-giving and lavish spending. Another one was Saturnalia that included all kinds of feasting and revelry. And most importantly is this one, this is, this is my favorite title of any festival, I think, The Birth of the Unconquered Sun. That's so like Lord of the Rings or something, right? 
So that was held actually on December 25th. It did, by the way, it wasn't instituted till the year 274. So this is not a pre-Christian thing. It was actually, they think it was actually a anti-Christian propaganda, which is really interesting. But anyway, that day, the, the 25th of September, was considered by the Romans to be the winter solstice, the shortest night of the year. Sorry, short, shortest day, longest night of the year. And so the point is that the, from that day onwards, the light was gradually growing stronger. The dark was gradually getting smaller. And so they said this is the night, symbolically, that the sun is born. The unconquered sun, because it happens every year. And so now we begin to get into our final thing here, which is why it is that Christmas became a festival of light. So Zechariah prophesies that because of the tender mercies of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And again, even with that, he's reaching back into Hebrew scriptures. He's reaching back to the prophecy of Malachi 4.2, which says the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 2, that says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And Zechariah is saying, this is being fulfilled now. This promise is right now coming into fruition because the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It's one of my favorite phrases in the whole scripture. So what is the meaning of this sunrise that we celebrate in this festival of light? This sunrise marks four things celebrated in our Advent candles. It marks the light of hope, of peace, of joy, and of love. Hope, peace, joy, and love embodied, made flesh. So first of all, the sunrise is a visitation of hope. He's referring to these prophecies that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to restore everything to the way it's meant to be. But here's the interesting thing. So Luke writes this probably in the late uh, 60s of the first century. And so he's he's pretty much a full generation after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And his audience, the one that he's writing this to, knows full well that Jesus' coming has not suddenly fixed everything that's wrong in the world. The Jews completely expected that when the Messiah would come, he would defeat all their Roman enemies, he would reestablish the kingdom and the throne of David, and everything in all creation itself, the temple. And yet just a generation later, the holy city itself, the temple itself, flattened. And so they were living in this tension between the, the, the promises having their beginning, but they haven't been fulfilled yet. And I think in the same way, we look today at the promises of Scripture, we look at the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, and we have hope in them, and yet we look around us and it looks like there's absolutely no trace of them to be found. There's darkness that constantly seems to be getting stronger. 
It's a world that's broken and full of pain. There's darkness inside us. There's darkness between us. There's darkness around us. And everybody knows that it's not meant to be this way. And yet, we don't seem to have any way to fix it. And yet, the story of the Bible, the story of Scripture, is that God made a promise. And he promised that he would overcome the darkness. That one day he would bring ultimate peace and make everything whole exactly the way it is meant to be. The promise is that there is hope. And it's a hope that cannot be snuffed out. It's interesting to me that as long as we have history of the church celebrating Advent, there was the tradition of midnight services. They actually believed that Jesus was born exactly at midnight. And so they had a service exactly at midnight on the 25th, on the 24th of December. And so, waiting at Advent. Because if you're going to do a midnight service in, in medieval times, you're going to need some candles. So, this is an ancient tradition. When we light candles as part of Advent, we're actually joining into this 1,400-year-old tradition that Christians have been celebrating, and, and probably older than that. But here's the thing. So we light candles, but the, the promise of God is not just like a candle in the wind that could get snuffed out at any moment. Zechariah says, no, this is the rising sun. Now, just like a candle when, you know, when the sun just begins to rise, all you have is twilight. All you have is a glimmer of the light that is coming. And yet, as soon as you see that, you know you can have an unshakable hope that the sun is rising, that it will certainly rise. It, it, doesn't, it actually doesn't matter at all how dark it is how dark it has been, as soon as you see that, that sliver of twilight peeking over the horizon, you know you have a living hope that the sunrise is coming. And so this is poetry in time. This is Zechariah saying, Christmas, this moment of Jesus' incarnation and birth, this is the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. And he says, it's to guide our feet in the way of peace. And so secondly, the sunrise is a visitation of peace. He's bringing light to those sitting in darkness. And it's interesting because Isaiah had said those walking in darkness, and Luke says those sitting in darkness. And he's emphasizing, you guys can't fix this. You're hopeless. People sit down. It's a picture of dejection, of giving up, (laughs) of not knowing which way to go next. And he's saying this is exactly the kind of person that the sun is rising for. And so you, you find yourself right now in a moment where you are utterly dejected. You don't know where to go. You don't have any seeming way out. God says, turn to me because I'm a God who specializes in making a way where there's no way of bringing wilderness into order, of bringing dryness into fruition. There is peace that is promised to us. And the word peace, scripturally, is shalom. It means completeness, perfect health and wholeness. And so when the sun rises, it brings an end to the darkness that keeps us from knowing which way to go. 
It gives us a peace that reveals things for what they really are. And it lights up the path into more and more life. And so this is where I get to the third one, which is that the visitation of the sunrise is a visitation of joy. His presence is fullness of joy, as the Psalms say. And the sunrise, it's the light of a new day. It's a fresh start. It's new opportunities. And the word here for to, to give light is actually the word epiphany. And an epiphany is when the light bulb suddenly turns on. You have this, this great revelation of a new path forward, a new idea. And so the sunrise is a visitation of joy. But lastly, the sunrise is a visitation of love. Because this is not just, unlike the Romans, the Romans celebrated this principle of the sun rising year after year. They celebrated this this idea of this ball of gas in the sky rising every year and giving new life. And yet the Christians said, what you celebrate as a principle, we celebrate as a person. What you celebrate as an idea, we celebrate as an incarnation. The sunrise will visit us from on high and only spiritual force or a mental enlightenment. This is a person that all history hinges on from this moment. He shines light on all of history and he's the one that the the scripture calls the son of righteousness, the, the Messiah who is coming to fulfill God's promise. Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. And so his birth is a festival of light. We light these candles, we, we hang these lights, we look to his star, and we retell this tradition, this story. And when he was born, it was like the moment of, of the first light of dawn peeking over the horizon. And so we still live in that twilight between the beginning of the sunrise and the ultimate, you know, noonday sun. We still live in that twilight. And yet, because we tell the story, we retell the story, because this story tells us who we are, we know that we're a people of hope. And hope that's a hope that's undefeatable. We're a people of peace that have no need to strive and fight with the powers of this world because we are ruled by a king who is victorious. We are people of joy. Because our hope and our our peace is not located in our circumstances. It's not located in what we see now. It's located in what we know is coming. In the one who's already come and who will come again. And we can be people of love. And so I want to draw us to a close here and just stand together. I want to end in a song because we've been talking about poetry and celebration. And I think it is only fitting And I'm going to pray and close out our time in the scripture here. Father God, I thank you for this festival that we get to. It's only because we have the poetry that underlies it, Lord, that we know the baby, the man, the person that gives it life, that gives it meaning. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that even in the darkest night, the darkest moment, this festival of your light, it reawakens us, 
reawakens us to the hope, the peace, the joy, the love that is only found in you. And so, Lord Jesus, as we enter this Advent season, the season that is pregnant with hope, Lord, that even in the sadness, the disappointment that we continue to live in, even as we dwell in the shadowlands, Lord, we would look forward towards your horizon, towards your sunrise. So we thank you, Jesus. And we pray as we celebrate this festival together, Lord, that you would shape us as a people. That you would come and transform us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.